couple of weeks ago, I was in Southern California for a conference. So every so often, I need to take uh, continuing ed classes for uh, my dental license. We're required to take so many hours every year. So the site was down in Anaheim. And Anaheim, at the Anaheim Convention Center, it's merely, what, a couple blocks away, a few blocks away from what is known as the happiest place on earth, and that's Disneyland. And at Disneyland, which is one of my favorite places to go to for pure entertainment and just the whole uh, fun factor there, um, Disneyland at the complex there, there's also California Adventure that's across from Disneyland Park. And at California Adventure, there's a place that's called the Animation Studios. Have any of you been there? It's one of my favorite places to go to because you, you learn to draw Disney characters. But it's also a really good place to go during the summertime when it's really hot. So the air conditioning it's in, the, in that, that, that building is really nice. So you can go in there and just kind of sit and just stay out of the heat. But in that building, there's this particular wall. And I think I have a picture of, of that wall. And, and on that wall, there's a saying. It says, uh, and they lived happily ever after. That's a great photo opportunity wall. Many of us take pictures in front of that. And in some ways, that image captures a lot of our own desire to have a life like that. Especially when you're young, maybe uh, naive, and haven't been through life. You kind of want to have a life that you can say that, that you lived happily ever after. But unfortunately, realities in life don't really allow that. There are trials and tribulations which pop up and block our way and burst our bubbles. But that's the reality of life. So you're asking me, well, what kind of trials are you asking me about? What are the experiences that could be challenges to this? Well, maybe you can identify with a few of these. You're uh, at the doctor's, and the doctor has a very somber look on his face. And he looks at you, and he says, do you want to die? Or you get this late-night call from the hospital. And on the other side of the phone, it says, I'm sorry to tell you, your father just passed away. Or maybe shortly after coming onto a staff team, Within a year, everything is going well. And your boss, the senior pastor, pulls you aside and says, can you hold this in confidentiality? But I'm thinking about planting a new church. When you hear those things, your brain is swirling, your heart rate races, and your blood pressure goes up. And you're wondering, what do you do? What do you do when those moments hit you? Well, we're in a series that, that's based on the book of James. And this book uh, in the Bible is one that's kind of very scarce on theology, but it's a really practical book on application. And, and, and it's a lot about doing versus theory. And so here, when we're going to go look in, in the verses that I have for James. To give you a little context, this is James, who is a brother 
uh, of, of Jesus. He's a leader. He's an apostle of the church. And, and he has to give some counsel to the early church because the early church is going through some trials. They are having some challenges. So a lot of the early adopters into the Christian faith, a lot of them are believing in Jesus and his lordship, and they have chosen to follow him. But, you know, life isn't good for them in the sense of a worldly sense. Things really haven't changed. They're, they're you know, essentially the first adopters were very poor people. They were the ones that were marginalized in society. They were just simple people. They were fishermen and farmers. They weren't the society's elite. So life was still going to be harsh for them. And then on top of that, because of their Christian faith, they were experiencing persecution. They were being persecuted by their own families that they left. Or the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, were persecuting them for changing faiths. And of course, by the government, by the Roman government, because they are now showing disloyalty to the Caesar. So under this kind of hardship, the early church was in a crisis. People were experiencing suffering, and they were questioning, is the Christian faith a good thing in my life? And then on top, so on top of this, I want us to take away this one application, the main point I have for this morning, that when trials of life rock your boat, God's wisdom will get you through the rough waters. That's the main idea, the main point. When the trials of life rock your boat, God's wisdom will get you through the rocky and rough waters. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go into James. We're going to chapter 1. We're going to kind of uh, follow after last week where Pastor Andrew took the introduction to this, to this book. I'm going to carry it from verses 2 to verse 8. So reading from James 1, verses 2 to 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And that's the word of the Lord. So from, from James, when trials happen, don't freak out. That's what James is essentially saying here. Don't freak out. But unfortunately, that's what happens when trials hit us. A lot of times, a lot of us get hysterical. We, our mind goes blank. We run around chaotically trying to figure out what's going on. Some of us react differently. We may go quiet. We run into a hole and try to hide and, and, and just to, to uh, wish that everything will change immediately. That's often a, a, a common human response. But this is a timeless truth. Blank happens. 
Now, this message is rated G, so I can't fill in what commonly would be used after S. So I'm not going to use the common one, but I'll just say stuff happens, right? That's the reality of life. Stuff is going to happen. And, and although stuff happens, the process will produce steadfastness. And this is what James says in verse 2, going to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing here, right? The first thing that, that, that James is talking to the church is that they're going through a lot of suffering and trials. And Pastor Andrew kind of brought this up last week, is that it's kind of weird that he says, have joy in that suffering. It's not a common feeling a lot of us would want. When you're going through tough times, do you think it's really enjoyable? Are you finding joy when, when, when you're going through a, a challenge? I, I, I probably not a common thing unless you have a proper mindset about it. And what James is saying is to have joy in the midst of trials because it produces something. It produces something, that there is a process. Now, there's a common uh, term that's been coined in sports, sports uh, vernacular recently. It's about enjoy the process. You know, a lot of sports teams are rebuilding their teams through the draft, and so they purposely tank or lose to get better draft choices, and they tell their fans, enjoy the process because it's rough. But in some sense, there is some, some truth to that, is that going through life, like going through to common sports um, um, uh, experiences, a lot of us who played sports, when, when it's like basketball, you, 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 you have practices, right? You have three-on-threes, one-on-ones, five-on-five drills, and even have simulation games, right? You play five-on-five. But there's nothing that can emulate or actually reproduce what actually happens in game time. You could practice all you want, but it's not the same when you're thrown into the fire of an actual game time situation. I remember a time when I think the last tournament I, tournament I played in, I had a pretty good team. We had three on three. And I don't know if Patrick Lynn is here. He, he was on another team, and he brought in some ringers from Southern California. But when we played them, and it was our first game, we weren't prepared. My team wasn't prepared for the speed and the hustle and the energy that, that Patrick and his team was putting on us. So we actually lost. But that, that was a realization that whatever we practice, it doesn't matter. Because when it comes to crunch time in a game, you have to bring more than that. And so that's the same way in life. That when crisis hits us, when trials and tribulations hit us, a lot of times we're not prepared and we freak out. And so what James is saying, prepare for the process and enjoy it. Expect it. Because in the process, you will produce steadfastness. And steadfastness means being faithful, being capable, being reliable. It's when 
a neighbor comes to your aid when your car breaks down and gives you a ride. It's a roommate when you're going through a broken relationship and there's a shoulder to cry on. That's what steadfastness is. That is having uh, someone who's capable, dependable, reliable, a rock. A rock of stability. And you ask me, and some of you may be asking, well, how do you get this steadfastness? How do you receive it? I'm going to tell you. And James tells us, when trials happen, don't run first to friends for advice. Okay? I mean, that's a common thing. When we, we get upset, when we're hurting, a lot of times, a normal thing for a lot of us to do is run to our friends first. And actually, there's a, there's a saying that kind of um, expresses that. Misery loves company. Is that we like to go to others and just pour out our hearts and just to get uh, sympathy from others. And that's okay to a point. But my reminder here is that, and what James is reminding us here, it is not to run to friends first, but to go to God first. And to accept his invitation to receive his advice, his counsel, his wisdom. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, this wisdom that that James is asking us to ask for from God, we have to remember that God's wisdom is not man's wisdom. It is totally different. And we have to understand that, believe it, and accept it. Because if we don't, we're going to get discouraged, disappointed with God, with ourselves, our life. So this is a key point, is to, to to, to realize God's wisdom, which the scripture is telling us, James is telling us, ask for God's wisdom, but it's different from man's. Because God's ways are not our ways. The wisdom of God is not always about foolproof solutions, answers that make logical sense. Wisdom is having knowledge from God that gets you through situations. The trouble may not go away. Those trials and challenges, those bumps in the road, those little valleys or big valleys, they may not go away. But God's wisdom is to understand that you will get through them. That's the experience and knowledge that you have. And that's, that's basically the, the definition of wisdom. It's having knowledge or wisdom, good or bad, to get you through something. Psalm 23, verse 4 says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's much wisdom there. It doesn't say that we go around the valley of death. It's when we go through the valley of death. The valley of death doesn't disappear. It's there. But God, through his word, his wisdom, which is the source for us, tells us that he will be with us. This book is a good source of God's wisdom. At moments of trials, 
and tribulations, it is good to go to God first, not to friends. You can do that later. But the first thing is to go to God, and the first source of that would be his word. Because in his word, there is much wisdom. In the Great Commission, Jesus promises us in Matthew 28, verse 20, he says this. These are the last words that Jesus is recorded of saying in the book of Matthew to his disciples. He says this, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Words of comfort for those of us who are going through difficulties, challenges, to know that Jesus will never abandon us. He will be there with us to the end of the age. When we are in the midst of trials, when our world is shaken, when everything seems like it's falling apart around us, go to God first because he is capable. He is steadfast. He is faithful. And his promises are yours to have when you have a deep relationship with Jesus. Now, besides the word of God, the Bible, scripture, as sources of God's wisdom, yes, going to godly people for counsel is a good source of wisdom. The key word is godly, spirit-led people. Also, the Holy Spirit that has been given to you by Jesus is also a good place to go to for wisdom. There are times that people come to me often for advice and counsel. I don't know why they do that. Uh, I, they come expecting a solution. There are moments and time in certain situations. Do I really care? No. Just kidding. <laughs> when people do come and I, I, I give advice, the f- most often the first thing I do is lead them to God. Point them to Jesus. Because uh, maybe in my younger days, uh, youthfulness, I would dream up some sort of solution. But often it's better to go to God first. Because God is a God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. That's God. So why not go to him first? Um, Recently giving counsel to one person uh, in my life. It's it's usually my children who are very important to me. My daughter uh, called me last weekend. And she was at a retreat. And and before she was going on this church retreat, uh, I have uh, a a bad sense of what was going to go on at that retreat. Uh, Whatever the case, God has given me... um, kind of these spidey senses. It's a the gift of discernment. And so uh, going into it, uh, what my daughter was expri- uh, expressing to me about that retreat, they were going to um, have a time where they uh, release generational sins and uh, brokenness, and, uh, uh, which is a good thing to do. But if it's not done in the, an appropriate setting with proper trained leaders, that could be um, a dangerous thing to do. My daughter is also a spiritual empath. She's like a sponge. She can feel and recognize the emotions and feelings of other people. 
And uh, so in a, a large crowd, a large group of people, that can be overwhelming for her. And so going into this retreat, realizing I had a sense that if this was going to happen, that she may uh, go into a crisis mode because uh, she can experience these things and then she will feel the pain and suffering of other people and it almost explodes in her. So she called me and she was wailing and crying and said, I, I'm feeling uh, horrible. And then so I had to essentially point her to Jesus. I had her take out her Bible. So take out your Bible, point her to the wisdom of God by saying, read to me Psalm 23. When I go through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and staff will comfort me. I told her to read the Lord's Prayer. Right? Those are words that will bring Jesus into your life again in times of crisis. And that is the best counsel that we can give to anyone when they are going through difficult times. When trials hit us, don't treat God like a genie. You know what a genie is? A genie is a uh, supernatural being that's under our control. But God's not a genie. You cannot control God because that's not what God is. God is not controllable. But that's what a lot of us have as our perspective of who God is. Because when we go to God in times of trial or tribulations or challenges, we often treat him like Santa Claus or an ATM machine. We give him our request, we punch it in, and we expect to get an outcome that we like. Unfortunately, live long enough, that's not the reality of life and a relationship with God. He doesn't always answer yes to you. He'll answer, but the answer may be no. So don't treat God like a genie. Without waffling, trust God totally. And this is what James says in verse 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what is, what is James talking about here? He's bringing about doubt. When we're asking for wisdom, don't doubt. And he says this gives this image of being tossed by the waves. And this is a powerful image. You have to remember, too, he's, He's saying uh, to, to, to many of the believers out there about, about going through suffering and trials, and it feels like you're on a boat and you're in the middle of a storm and it's rocking chaotically. Have you ever been there? I mean, James has. You've got to remember, he was with Jesus with the other disciples, and they were in a storm, and Jesus, and that's where Peter was walking on the water. They've had that experience, they survived. So James is going back to kind of that experience that he had, that he, he was rescued by Jesus in the midst of a storm. 
But I ask you, have you ever been in rough waters? Truly on a boat. I have. I mean, I, I love going deep sea fishing. Uh, it's, it's one of my passions. And a bunch of guys at church, we, we do that uh, a lot. And, and it's a lot of fun. Except for those who get seasick. <laughs> so if you've ever gotten seasick, like the scripture is saying, being tossed around, it's not a fun situation to be in. I've literally seen people turn various shades of green. I didn't believe it until you actually see somebody seasick. They actually turn green looking. And, uh, and it's not fun also being downwind from somebody who's seasick. You literally see a meal go right in front of you that's been blended. I mean, it's one of those sights that you would try to avoid. But it happens. It happens when, when people are sick. And when you're sick, seasick, there is no point of return. It's, it, it's, it's crazy. It's, you're, once you're sick, you're sick. And, um, and when you're in that state, there is a lot of doubt in your mind. Because you're doubting if you're going to actually live and survive that, that, that situation. But that's what it means to be seasick. And that's what James is kind of pointing out here. When life is dealing you a lot of, lot of waves, when your boat is being rocked, you feel terrible. Your mind's all over the place, and you're li- literally wanting to throw up. But in those moments, he's saying that we are not to doubt, not to allow ourselves to be tossed by the waves. And I want to point out here something that what this, this passage about doubting. A lot of times, some people apply this in situations where you're praying for something and, and you're asking for a particular outcome. Some people interpret this as saying, if the outcome doesn't come because it's because you doubted, that you didn't have a strong enough faith, that you should keep on trying harder, pray harder, work harder, don't doubt. Believe more. I don't think that's what the text is telling us. That's too much for me, a work-based faith. It's not about what we do. It's what Jesus has already done. If it's dependent on us praying better, being better, believing better, we're in trouble. And so I particularly don't like that interpretation and application from that scripture. I believe what James is saying when he says doubt, don't doubt. He's not talking about doubting in your faith. It's about doubting the character of God. Don't doubt God. God is God. And according to the scripture here, people who doubt, and you get a better understanding of my understanding of the text, he calls people who doubt two characteristics. He says they are double-minded and they are unstable. So what does it mean to be double-minded? The best analogy I could say is like two-timing God. Have you ever been in a dating relationship and you've been two-timed? Where the other person is actually seeing another person? It's not a great feeling. That's what it means to be two-timed. 
that's double-minded. And that's what James is pointing to here, is that do not be double-minded with God. To let your focus be detracted from God as being your primary relationship. If you have other idols in your life, other things that you rely on, they cannot replace God. And if you do so, that's being double-minded. And if you are then not solely relying and trusting in God, then you're going to be unstable. Because God is stable. And that's what James is talking about here. James is saying that in the midst of trials, in the midst of rocky life situations, you need stability. You need a firm foundation. And so do not doubt the character of God because God is steadfastness. That's what trials are supposed to produce, steadfastness. And a lot of times it's easy for us to think we're going to get the steadfastness on our own. That's crazy. Because in my own life, I'm so messed up. If I'm supposed to be reliable, capable, faithful, faithful, rock at all times, that's not possible. And what the scripture is is telling us, what James is saying, that steadfastness comes out of trials because we look to the one who is steadfast. And that is God. And choose that overgoing and panicking, which does nothing, freaking out, or going to friends who may commiserate with you but may not have the ultimate wisdom to help you through. When I um, uh, became a pastor, and I was about, uh, I guess it's 18 years now, a little bit of trivia, I am now the longest reigning pastor at Christian Church. So, <laughs> 18 years. So that's a long time when, you know, statistics show pastors only last four or four years, which is kind of a sad state uh, in, in Christendom. When, uh, when I became the, uh, essentially they gave me the title, interim executive pastor back then, and um, Essentially, in function, I was the interim lead pastor, and I did it for four years. And, and that was probably the most challenging time in my life because I was overseeing a staff of, of 10, uh, four pastors, two directors, three, four admin people, and running a dental practice. So could you imagine the stress that was in my life at that time? And I had young kids. Um, so I will have to say that was probably the roughest time in my life. And it, it had its consequences. It, it, my health uh, deteriorated. And uh, one of the scenarios that I shared earlier, I went to the doctors because I was starting to get chest pains. And that's when my doctor looked at me and he said, do you want to die? And I said, no, 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 I'm here because I want to live. And uh, he was funny because he knew I was a pastor and he knew I was a dentist. And he goes, hmm, I know it isn't dentistry, so it must be the church that's killing you. <laughs> so I said, yeah, he's right. Um, so this is, that, uh, you know, when I was, I was uh, told I, was, I had hypertension 
and then I had flipped to being uh, type 2 diabetic. And, and so I was, as I said, my, my brain was swirling, my, my heart rate was racing, my breath pressure was even higher. To hear that news that all my life I, I tried to be healthy. I, 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 I kept myself, I exercised. I mean, I didn't have any weight on me to lose. And to hear that, I was devastated. And then my, my initial reaction was I was really angry. I was angry at God. It's because I told I, I know I promised you when I came t- uh, to Jesus that I would do anything that you called me to do. But this is killing me when I became um, a pastor of the church. And, and, and at that moment, God had to remind me of this. He said... And he often has to do this over and over again in my life, that his grace is sufficient for me. Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 through 10. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So at that moment, I realize, even though I may be suffering, and maybe I will die for my, my uh, service, but in some ways, the scripture says that is what we are to expect when we follow Jesus. Life isn't going to be easy. But if I am going to be weak, in my suffering, then God can be strong. And that is the glory that we want to reveal through our lives. And honestly, you know, we we all like definite positive answers and solutions to our sufferings. When we're going through trials and tribulations, challenges, bumps in the road, we like quick, foolproof answers. We like a solution to feel good again. Nobody wants to feel bad. It's kind of counterintuitive. And it's really hard to understand that and accept that. But God's ways are not our ways. And ultimately, steadfastness is not possible by relying on ourselves. There's an American ethic, right, that we can pull ourselves by our bootstraps to get out of any situations. But in the realities of life, that self-reliance can be a deterrent to what God can do in our lives. God wants us to depend on him in times of trouble. He relishes that. He adores us for that. And if we can believe that, then we can benefit from that process of going to him during times of trouble. Deep abiding love of God grants us his steadfastness. So in the midst of suffering, which may not be removed or solved even by God, we can still have joy and peace. God's wisdom is not about having the right answers, but the knowledge and repeated experiences to know even when circumstances are shaky, God will be with us. And that is all we really need. It's a hard concept to believe in, but those of us who have and those of us who have experienced it 
know what I'm talking about. Yet for some of us, our resistance to going to God first is because plainly, plain and simple, we're just foolish. We just don't want to go to God. It's out of our foolishness. Another reason is that we don't want to go to God because we think we can do better. We're so self-centered. And a bottom line, and I'm going to be frank here, and this may be a bit harsh or convicting, I believe some of us don't believe God. We don't believe what he tells us in his book of wisdom. We read it, take it as knowledge, but we don't actually believe it. We don't implement it, allow it to work in us. I found this great devotional poem that says what James is pointing us to. And I'm going to read it to you. They may flash the words up there so that you can read along with me. The deepest level of worship is praising God. In spite of the pain, thanking God during the trials, trusting him when we are tempted to lose hope, and loving him when he seems so distant and far away. At my lowest, God is my hope. At my darkest, God is my light. At my weakest, God is my strength. At my saddest, God is my comforter. This is so true in me. This was true for James. And my hope is that those words will be true for you. So remember this. When the trials of life rock your boat, God's wisdom will get you through the rough waters. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we look to you so we won't be overwhelmed. Give us your vision to see things like you do. God, we look to you, especially when trials and troubles shake us up. You are where our help comes from. So give us wisdom. You know just what to do.